0: Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
1: Today on World Footprints, we'll focus on the issue of global hunger and economic opportunity and what prominent business and governmental leaders such as Howard Buffett, Bill Gates, and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton are doing to help in the cause. Hello everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially conscious and responsible lifestyle and travel. We're your hosts, Tanya and Fitzpatrick. Join us now as we help shed some light on a global humanitarian crisis, hunger.
2: Thanks dear. Recently, a number of champions in the fight against hunger came together in Washington at the State Department to honor Howard Buffett.
3: You know, the truth is there is no game changer in the end. I mean, this is tough work. It's a complicated problem.
2: And Bill Gates.
4: You know, whether you look at uh, the nutrition needs that, if they're not fully met, mean that a child doesn't develop their full potential and the kind of economic impact that has.
2: And what their foundations are doing to eradicate hunger. Vice President Joe Biden talks about the Obama administration's Feed the Future initiative and its fight against global famine.
5: Feed the Future is about restoring the basic dignity that comes from being able to feed your own family without having to turn to anyone for help.
2: In the U.S., a strong public private non governmental partnership is behind the Purchasing for Progress program that promotes smart farming in famine zones. And we'll hear from former U.S. Agriculture Secretary and Congressman Dan Gluckman, U.S. Aid Director Dr. Rajiv Shah, and Cargill Chairman and CEO Greg Page on this life saving program.
0: And clearly, the world could grow the calories it needs it does already, we just don't distribute them well.
2: Secretary of State Hillary Clinton joins the honorees and the World Food Program's executive director, Josette Sheeran, in a conversation on the role the world's women will play in fighting famine.
6: Those of us who work and care about this area know, which is if you don't focus on women, if you're trying to improve uh, agricultural production and really the whole chain in access and affordability, we're not going to be successful.
2: This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at WorldFootprints.com.
1: A stain on the conscious of the world and obscene were just some of the words Vice President Joe Biden used to describe the world's famine crisis in his speech at the State Department before the World Food Program's USA McGovern Leadership Award Ceremony to honor Howard Buffett and Bill Gates. As the vice president describes his wife's experience with a Somali woman, you'll see why the vice president chose to use those haunting
5: words. My wife, Jill, tells a haunting story because it continues to haunt her. A haunting story of being in the camp as describing a meeting with a woman who made that long, long walk from Somalia's famine zone into Kenya. She started off with two young children and, uh, but midway when she could no longer carry both of them because they were both malnutri- suffering from malnutrition, she had to leave one. A tragedy like that is sort of a stain on the conscience of the world. You now there's an ad by the One campaign, and it says, "Famine is obscene. Famine is obscene." And I know that for those of you who have seen the suffering up close, I know it haunts you as well. It haunts all of us. But it stiffens our resolve to do something about it. In addressing these problems, our administration has been motivated by a simple, straightforward proposition. And that is we have the capacity, we have the capacity to do something about this. We came to office. President Obama and I were determined, and it was really the President. I've been done this as a chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee for years, but it was really the President's passion. It was absolutely determined to frame a global response to not only deal with the crisis now, but to prevent, to prevent similar crises in the future. Now, some thought that's a little bit of pie in the sky. How can we prevent these things? We can. We can. He knew that this was a problem we could do something about, and he felt a moral obligation to the nearly 1 billion people in the world who suffer from chronic hunger. So early in 2009, we launched the Food Security Initiative and made it a priority for our administration. In the midst of our own economic crisis, we committed at least $3.5 billion over three years to launch this initiative, which we call Feed the Future. And the rest of the international community pledged another $18.5 billion. And we continually urge our partners and our friends up on the Hill to do even more. Feed the Future is about restoring the basic dignity that comes from being able to feed your own family without having to turn to anyone for help. So this series of programs is focusing on the 20 vulnerable countries in three continents with a goal of helping 18 million people out of poverty, including 7 million children who are chronically malnourished. These plans are focused not just on today's desperate needs, but on anticipating and preventing tomorrow's challenges, with programs that emphasize nutrition, research, and development and conservation, and that unleash the productivity of women. We're actively engaging the private sector, which works in partnership with the governments, to help create a sustainable agricultural economy in these countries, which the development world remain in the development world remains the key to economic growth. In several African countries, our agency for international development is working with General Mills, for example, to transform fruit, the food processing sector offering technical support and training to increase the availability of high-quality, nutritious, and safe foods. In Central America, our development experts work with Walmart to support small-scale farmers, facilitating relationships with Walmart buyers who can explain the quality standards and share in the productive uh, um, uh, calendars as to how, in fact, they can use the product made. And through a new initiative, our government will train Ethiopian Ethiopian chickpea farmers. PepsiCo is is a source of at least 10 percent of its growing demand for chickpeas from Ethiopia. And the World Food Program and others will process Ethiopian chickpeas into highly nutritional supplements for the nourishment of children. Through these and many other programs, many of you have done and are responsible for and are working on we hope Feed the Future can be a blueprint for a development policy in the coming decades. We also made food security a priority because it enhances our national security and the stability of the international system. Pope Paul the Seventh once said, and I quote, development is the new word for peace. Development is the new word for peace. And the reality is that In many countries, food security and political stability are closely linked. Investments made to ward off food insecurity and prevent the recurrence can prevent the vicious cycle of rising extremism, armed conflict, state failure that require far larger commitments of other resources down the road. When food prices spiked three years ago, riots or demonstrations broke out in a dozen countries because people could no longer feed their children. And many of these protests were violent. I need not tell you about Sudan, the Darfur crisis, which seized the world's attention much of the past decade, that it was sparked in part by competition for arable land, a competition later used to justify unspeakable atrocities by the Jean Jouy militia. The crisis in Darfur is man-made, but... It is also true that with dwindling supplies of water and arable land often exacerbated by climate change, the conditions were ripe for conflict because people were forced to compete for resources they once shared, although an easy as the sharing may have been. Food insecurity is also f- fueling political instability in the Horn of Africa, as millions flee Somalia into neighboring Kenya and Ethiopia. That's why President Obama, has not hesitated to authorize more aid to those affected by this famine, despite the risk posed by al-Shabaab, a terrorist group that has brutalized the Somali population and placed deadly restrictions on humanitarian access to southern Somalia. He said, let me worry about al-Shabaab. Where we can, we have to take steps to help those starving, those women, those children. That was his quote. Al-Shabaab terrorists did not create the food crisis but they have made it far worse. Drought conditions exist throughout East Africa, but so far, famine is concentrated only in the al-Shabaab-controlled areas. And in the face of famine, al-Shabaab has disrupted agricultural practices and the free flow of goods and willfully denied hundreds of thousands of starving people access to food, water, and medicine. They have kidnapped innocent civilians, threatened aid workers, in the very camp many of you and my wife visited, and the most cynical action of all, they endanger their own people by commandeering assistance sent by the rest of the world to the starving children and women of that country. These sorts of tactics are controversial even within al-Shabaab and among its leaders. Make no mistake, it's not that al-Shabaab cares that much about innocent people dying. Rather, they're concerned that these grim conditions threaten their own grip on the region and undermine their propaganda purporting to defend the Somali people. Folks, the challenge that remains for us are enormous. To broaden the scale of our most successful projects, we need to build on the alliances that have brought us here today. We need more leaders like Bill Gates and Howard Buffett more companies to join us as partners, more nations willing to respond to our President's commitment, more NGOs and courageous NGO workers. By the way, I want to thank all of you, all of the NGOs, for doing your part. It takes an enormous amount of physical courage to do what many of them are doing. We honor them. We honor their physical courage, day in and day out, in delivering the help that is needed most. And we're going to continue to, by urging our friends in the Congress, to resist the urge to slash foreign aid budgets, because long-term solutions now can reduce the cost of massive relief efforts and instability later. We know one thing for sure. If we do nothing, food insecurity will loom as an even bigger threat to the future. We also know that if we act, we can make a difference. We have the science. We have the know-how. We have the capabilities. We just have to have the will. And I'm often accused of being, as Hillary and my colleagues would say, as sort of the the West Wing optimist, as if I'm the new guy in town, as my grandfather would say, as if I'm the guy that just fell off the turnip truck yesterday. I've been hanging around for eight presidents, (laughs) including a great president, Bill Clinton. But let me tell you something, folks. I am more optimistic today than I was when I got elected to the Senate at 29 years old because all these crises present enormous opportunities, enormous opportunities. I believe strongly in the human capacity and desire to build a better world, but I am particularly confident in our ability to feed the future, because we've done it before. Beginning in the 1950s, we provided agricultural support, research, training, and partnership with American firms to South Korea, which is one of the poorest countries on the planet. Today, it's the world's 15th largest economy, a major trading partner responsible for hundreds of thousands of American jobs. During the Green Revolution of the 60s and the 70s, developing initiatives raised living standards all around the world, most notably in Asian countries that were barely able to feed themselves. But since then, they've never looked back. In the 19. 80s Ethiopia was the center of the great famine known around the world as the very epitome of human suffering during the current drought affecting Ethiopia as well many still need help but because of our investments in Ethiopia because of the investments we made in agriculture there are 8 million people hit by this drought who do not need aid to survive 8 million So don't tell me this cannot be done. Unfortunately, as the world's attention has shifted at the end of the last century, critical investments in agriculture around the world fell. The work that we began and were so successful at, many of you in this room were so successful at, was left unfinished. Too many nations in the process were left behind, and this time, We've got to keep our focus, notwithstanding our own economic difficulties. You know, uh, Norman sometimes called the, uh, the Green Revolution, the Green Revolution founder said, quote, If you desire peace, cultivate justice, but at the same time, cultivate the fields to produce more bread. Otherwise, there will be no peace. Many of you in this room have picked up that mantle and are carrying it forward with distinction and with a passion that is observable. And in doing so, you're fostering a world that is more just and peaceful, and in turn, a nation ours and others that is more secure. Thank you all for what you do. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. It was an honor to be here today and may God protect our troops. Thank you all so much.
2: Coming up, a roundtable of some of the USA's top leaders in the global hunger fight.
0: Clearly the world can grow the calories it needs. It does already. We just don't distribute them well.
2: Next is World Footprints Radio continues.
7: Hi, my name's Jennifer Jones, and I'm from Glasgow in Scotland.
5: I love listening to the World Footprints Radio show online.
2: Attention shutterbugs. If you have some great travel photographs in your collection, enter them today in the World Footprints Travel Photo Contest for a chance to win great prizes. It's free and easy. All you have to do is like us on Facebook and then enter the contest page to submit up to four of your best travel photographs. Then start recruiting your family and friends to vote for you. The top vote-getters win great prizes, so hurry because the chance to enter closes soon. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make worldfootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the travel marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services.
1: Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio.
0: And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. The fight to end global hunger has brought together public, private, and non-governmental players in the U.S. Former U.S. Agriculture Secretary and Congressman Dan Glickman... USA Director Dr. Rajiv Shah and Cargill Chairman and CEO Greg Page came together to talk about cooperation in the fight against famine. First, Dan Glickman on helping the small farmer in the famine fight.
8: Uh, Certainly, uh, helping the small farmer is is a direct antidote to ending poverty, and poverty is the primary reason why hunger exists and why uh, all sorts of economic and political dislocation exists. So uh, helping uh, smallholder farmers, particularly women farmers in the developing world, is a critical part of rebuilding the basic infrastructure of agriculture so people can feed themselves.
1: Howard Buffett on the topic. I would say that uh, there isn't any
3: way to do it without small farmers. Um, First of all, with the several billion small farmers across the developing countries, uh, most of them, many of them suffer periods of hunger, Uh, they experience food insecurity. So the very basic thing that you can do is bring those farmers up to a level where they are food secure themselves. And it's, it, to us in this country, uh, in a sense, it's almost hard to think of a farmer that can't feed his family, uh, where our farmers feed 155 people a day. But um, that is the fact. And so they absolutely have to be their critical link in reaching global food security, uh, because we can't reach all those farmers, so they they'll have to do it themselves. With, with hopefully with
7: the assistance that they they can get.
1: Dr. Rajiv Shah on small farmers.
7: I'll echo that most uh, most poverty and hunger and extreme poverty is concentrated in rural communities and in and amongst those households that are in the smallholder agriculture business. So, uh, being able to help them help themselves, move their communities out of poverty and hunger, invest in their children is not just the pathway to reduce hunger around the world but also the pathway to pursue inclusive growth in many of the countries that we're targeting and talking about so it's a critical part of our overall long-term economic strategy as well. Greg
1: Page on the local nature of agriculture and the need to get farmers in famine zones income from farming.
0: Agriculture is a very very local business and so to feed the world without enhancing the productive role of small farmers is very impractical. I think the second thing is to realize that to deal with producing more calories without dealing with rural sociology is half of a victory. And clearly the world could grow the calories it needs. It does already. We just don't distribute them well. But to grow the world's calories in the most appropriate way is to simultaneously deal with the need agronomically to produce the calories, but also to deal with the rural sociology and the production system that is used. I think the final thing is the need within the smallholder world to have revenue or income adequacy as a foundation along with the need for technology and agronomic support, but without income surety, it's really unlikely that the role of the small farmer can be what it needs to be in an appropriately balanced food world. Certainly in the case of income income adequacy. If you look across the globe and see where agriculture has evolved more effectively, where the Borlaug Green Revolution took place, it was by and large in countries where farmers were given some surety about revenue from year to year. So whether it was in Mexico, where they've had income support for many years, it's not an issue of picking that exact right price, but it is the role of institutions and governments in ensuring through both property rights and income adequacy that a farmer will reinvest for the future. If a farmer grows a crop and has the good fortune to have great weather and as a result gets a terribly diminished price, they're discouraged from putting the kind of infrastructure in place that will ultimately feed 7, 8, and 9 billion people.
2: Here's Dan Glickman on the role U.S. government has in crafting workable solutions.
8: You know, there's a there's a lot of pieces of this. Uh, what we've learned is, is that it's more than just governments, although governments are critical, particularly when there's starvation and hunger. I'm reminded I brought with me this quote from O. Henry. He says, Love and business and family and religion and art and patriotism are nothing but shadows of words when a man is starving. And that always struck me that the first thing you have to do is to make sure you deal with the humanitarian crises that are out there. But at the same time, self sufficiency in agriculture is very important and it's doable. It doesn't require massive exotic technologies in most cases. It requires a commitment by government and more and more by the private sector and the NGOs to engage. And, by the way, it's good business, too, because my colleague David Beckman was just telling me that the biggest – Uh, income growth in the world is occurring in the most poverty-ridden areas. Uh, And so as as that increase in economic productivity increases, people will buy more things, and it will be good for the private sector all over the world. But it requires a combination of public and private sector and NGO and technology investments that in the very small investment that the United States government makes around the world to help people pull themselves out of poverty is one of the greatest investments we can make for our national security as the vice president said but also for the economic and political security of these countries.
2: Howard Buffett feels strongly about new ways of thinking such as purchasing for progress, a way of buying from local farmers for famine relief programs.
3: First of all we have to take risk Um, and what I mean by that is we have to quit thinking like we have for 30 years Uh, We have to think differently. We have to have a new paradigm. Uh, The amazing thing, uh, I think, today is we have the commitment to do this, and, and I I mean, obviously I'm paying more attention to it today than I ever did, but uh, in my lifetime there's never been this kind of commitment, I don't think, uh, in my adult lifetime. Uh, The Secretary has made it her mission. Raj is a great person to try to carry that mission out. Um, but what we have to do is realize that we can't think that our our, that our way of doing things are always the solutions for somebody else, and we have to change that paradigm. And uh, that will mean a lot of things, longer than what I can say here today, but uh, it will involve... Uh, innovative projects like P4P that can get farmers into markets. It will also depend on um, older ideas that still work, uh, to Greg's point earlier, which is food for work or food for assets. Uh, I've seen those programs transform communities. So it's going to take from one extreme to the other. But what this country has to do is take a leadership role and be willing to take some risk and try things that are not necessarily proven but may or may not work. Those that fail, that's fine. Go on to the next one. What we've invested in in most of our life in this country has been corn, soybeans, rice, the staples that we know, okay? Africa is about many other crops, okay? A lot of people call them orphan crops. There are a lot of local crops, and we don't invest in them because they're not popular or maybe because we don't even know that we need to be investing them in certain areas. But they're also not crops that automatically turn uh, will turn into a commercial opportunity uh, but that's that's the role government has to play is they have to fill in those blanks fill in those holes um, and so w- one of those things we need to do is we need to look at different crops different production systems africa has the most weathered soils in the world okay they got, they kind of got the short end of the stick when when the glaciers moved off you know the fact is we have to look at biologically-based systems. We have to look at soil health. We have to look at a lot of things in a, in a continent like Africa that we aren't used to talking about.
2: Dr. Raj Shah, in building on Buffett's point, speaks to the need for a political commitment in the United States.
7: I, I would just say three things. First, uh, Billy on Howard's point, I think we need consistent and significant political commitment. And you heard the vice president articulate both his and the president's direct passion for this. This is a group and this is a building that is ve- well aware of Secretary Clinton's absolute insistence that we get this done. And I would also point out that uh, Congressman McGovern was here, but also Representative McCullum And there are a number of leaders in both parties that are just so eager to see this effort succeed. So continuing to nurture and maintain and not take for granted that level of political commitment is going to be absolutely necessary to be successful. Second, as Howard also said, we have to do things differently. The one I'd point out is we've probably spent too long in this field not adequately recognizing the role of the private sector, the role of systems that do bring price consistency and market incentives to uh, the systems that define agricultural production in developing parts of the world. And we're today here celebrating an innovative solution to that that we can really build off of, we need more of those innovations and more partners like Greg to work with to make that real for not just millions of people but tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. And third, I think we have to measure and report on results in just a more clear and simplistic way. We crafted the goal of Feed the Future as moving 18 million people out of poverty and hunger, 7 million children out of a state of chronic malnutrition. So we had a simple, identifiable, reportable metric because I, I really believe firmly that the American people have the capacity to support these investments if we can demonstrate results. And, and that's a big if. It's one we're absolutely committed to And it's one that I think will make ultimately the difference between success and failure.
2: As the roundtable wraps, here are Page, Glickman, and Dr. Shaw on strong governmental policies and the need for America to be engaged on the famine issue as a key to national and global security. First, Greg Page on the role free trade can play.
0: In addition to those mentioned, I think one important role the U.S. has played that will ultimately be critically important to feeding the world most economically is free trade that as a result of the price signal, a country like Zambia this year will have nearly a million ton surplus of grain to be marketed in a world where not possible, the opportunity for those farmers to access those markets wouldn't exist, and I think the U.S. has really taken a leadership role for a long time. Without comparative advantage, and certainly there's probably no other area of economic activity where comparative advantage is more important than it is in agriculture, Without trade, you will never have the comparative advantage that exists between one climate and one soil type uh, to another. And so, I think the American government should take great pride in the role that it's played in being sure that farmers, as they find success, can also find market access.
8: First of all, I, I, I would compliment both Raj and Secretary Clinton have been leaders transformationally in these issues. I mean, it just it's incredible the difference which has taken place at, at AID and state uh, compared to 30, 40, 50 years ago. But I would say that because of the fiscal problems and the the political issues, the economic issues that our country and the world is facing, there is great danger that the United States may withdraw. And if we do withdraw, it doesn't send a very good signal to the private sector, nor to the academic world, the land-grant world, and everybody else that we're all all in this together. So I, I think as we look at all the issues the United States is facing, military, political, and economic, as the Secretary likes to talk about, development is a key part, along with diplomacy and defense of America's role in the world. And, and so at least the message I would like to leave, leave is, is that uh, in U.S. engagement, it's sensible, intelligent, responsible engagement, working with the private sector, leading on research, and leading uh, certainly in terms of investment, human and, and, and capital investment, is critical, or we else will go backwards, not forwards. I just think it's disengagement of America as being a part of the world. It's, 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 a, it's a leadership role that we've always had. One is because of the great bounty of our country, being able to produce. So much food, not only for ourselves but for the rest of the world, but our technical leadership, our values. i w- I'll just tell you one quick story. I went with Catherine Bertini, the former head of the World Food Program, to Africa, and we're there. And a man comes up to me with the government. He says, uh, you have three great heroes in America. I said, who are they? They said, they are Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and George W. Bush. And I said, I don't think I can find a place in the United States that could say that. And I just heard from an <laughs> in uh, they, they, There is great feeling that we have been a positive benefactor, and we just need to maintain that.
7: Foreign assistance is less than 1% of our federal budget, but we all uh, watch debates and hear uh, talk of significantly reducing our foreign commitments around the world. And I think the vice president said it best when he pointed out that When we do invest in feeding the future, we save money on humanitarian responses to crises. When we do invest in long-term development of places like South Korea, we save our own resources and blood and treasure by what's required when places fail. And Secretary Gates uh, used to say that it's cheaper to do development than to send soldiers. Uh, But sometimes our budgeting processes don't always follow that axiom and and it is in fact uh, amazing that we can be discussing uh, the consequences of 30 or 40% reductions in this body of work because they'll be felt not just in the moral loss of human life but in the real threat that then results to our own national security and uh, and that's why we've tried to do this work to a level of excellence that engages private partners that um, focuses on building a global playing field that is level and a global economy that is integrated because that's all part of the world we want to live in in the future and uh, and it's a choice we have to make and we're making it right now.
1: When we return, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on the fight against famine.
6: P4P has proven itself a powerful tool to help break the cycle of both hunger and poverty. Next, as World Footprints continues.
4: My name is Maul. I'm born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt, and I live in the audience for almost 17 years and I I like to hear
2: Wallet Footprints. Thank you. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals, from environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr., to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Attention shutterbugs. If you have some great travel photographs in your collection, enter them today in the World Footprints Travel Photo Contest for a chance to win great prizes. It's free and easy. All you have to do is like us on Facebook. There are two ways to access the contest through our World Footprints Media Facebook page, or you can link to the contest from our website, at worldfootprints.com, You can enter up to four of your best travel photographs. Voting for the best travel picks will commence after the contest entry date has closed and winners will be announced soon after. The top vote-getters win, so hurry, because the chance to enter closes soon.
1: Hi, this is Chantel from New Orleans. I love World Footprints Radio. You guys rock.
0: You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
2: Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. With one billion hungry people in the world, the scope of the challenge before the U.S. and its partners the world over is immense. In honoring Gates and the Buffett Foundations, the fight to end hunger will require local solutions that not only get the needy food, but foster economic development in communities where women will play a major role in fighting famine. Here's Secretary Clinton.
6: Ending hunger is not only possible, but it is both a moral and strategic imperative. And you know better than most why that happens to be the case. Uh, Not only will millions of lives be saved, but we will also promote stability and prosperity and security. Now, with us are a number of the leaders in the fight against global hunger. Uh, We're going to hear from uh, three of them in just a minute. Of course, Bill Gates, Howard Buffett, and Josette Sheeran. And also, you've already heard from, or perhaps you have spotted in the crowd, uh, Dan Glickman and Greg Page. And I want to once again thank Richard Leach for his work in promoting uh, this important uh, event and the incredible commitment that it represents. I want to thank Raj Shah for his leadership and passion about uh, this issue as well. Um, We heard uh, from the Vice President earlier, and I was delighted that he could join us. He came not only because of his commitment to the issue, but because Hunter Biden will be the next chair. And that, I think, says uh, a great deal about the importance that this issue has to the Biden uh, family. Um, So there are many of you who are part of this amazing effort that is represented by Uh, the World uh, Food Program's uh, USA uh, commitment and uh, all of you who are part of making its work happen. I have the very uh, pleasant task of uh, not only introducing two people who need no introduction, but formally uh, providing them with an award that I was honored to receive last year on behalf of the Obama Administration's efforts Uh, in our our effort to try to coordinate and focus our uh, nutrition and food security and emergency response uh, programs. The focus that they have brought to individual smallholder farmers has been really uh, a change agent in the world of fighting uh, hunger and improving food security. Uh, Everyone knows that 60 to 70 percent of the world's farmers uh, labor on small plots uh, primarily for themselves and their families with the hope that there will also be uh, some left over for the purpose of uh, increasing their incomes. Now, the Gates Foundation has focused on research and development to improve the yield of staple crops upon which much of the world depends. And they do work to strengthen farmers' access to markets and help countries improve their agricultural policies to encourage uh, widespread economic growth. And I'm especially grateful that uh, the Foundation makes sure every grant supports an optimal role for women because fostering uh, women in agriculture is one of the most effective ways to increase production and nutritional outcomes. Similarly, the Buffett Foundation supports groundbreaking research to improve soil health, including through the use of no-tillage farming. Uh, Howard Buffett is encouraging people to think about a brown revolution that will do for Africa what the green revolution did for India and Southeast Asia. And he is a tireless advocate for localized solutions that combine better seeds, with appropriate techniques that can benefit smallholder farmers. Both foundations uh, try to make the most of their investments. Together with the World Food Program, the organizations help launch the Purchase for Progress program, or P4P. Now, P4P buys food locally, so the World Food Program's aid benefits both families in need and nearby farmers. And in just three years, P4P has proven itself a powerful tool to help break the cycle of both hunger and poverty. The United States is a leading partner in these relief efforts, and thanks to the USAID-funded Famine Early Warning Systems Network, we were able to pre-position food aid and respond quickly. We've already committed almost $650 million for food and humanitarian assistance, And today, I am pleased to announce that we are providing an additional $100 million, primarily in food assistance for drought-affected areas in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. And this new funding will help us reach more people and support our humanitarian commitment well into 2012. So we are trying to address hunger on all fronts, providing emergency aid, building resilience, investing in solutions that will have lasting effects seeking innovations that will help us mitigate crises now and in the future. And in our efforts, we are absolutely dependent upon our partnerships from the private and philanthropic sectors. Uh, Now, we will be discussing this in our uh, discussion, although I told Josette, Bill, and Howard that I wanted to listen more than talk because they're the ones on the front line actually delivering Uh, what we hope to see make a difference. But it now is my great honor to present Bill Gates and Howard Buffett with the 2011 George McGovern Award for Leadership in the Fight Against Hunger. Um, I'm going to congratulate you both. You're not going to have to get up. Uh, These beautiful awards are here for you to be able to take on your way out. But congratulations to you both, and thank you for what you're doing.
2: Josette Sheeran on why the World Food Foundation exists.
6: This is the 50th anniversary of the creation of the World
4: Food Program. Uh, It was created with the idea that peace cannot be built on an empty stomach after the experience of a war-ravaged Europe was stalked by hunger and malnutrition and the power of interventions to transform countries and stability. And it's still going strong, but it's been rare in our history that we've seen a foreign minister and then presidents and prime ministers get behind the fight for the hungry, and then such transformational business leaders as this.
2: Here's Bill Gates describing how the Gates Foundation is fighting famine around the world.
4: Now for our foundation, as we looked at what the great inequities are, uh, we really kept coming back to health and agriculture as the two that that topped the list. You know, Whether you look at uh, the nutrition needs that if they're not fully met, mean that a child doesn't develop their full potential and you know, the kind of economic impact that has. Or if they have, you know, childhood diseases and that tends to interact with, uh, you know, if you have diarrhea, you have malaria fevers, you're not getting enough uh, food, uh, that makes things even tougher. It raises the chance of dying. It uh, raises the chance that uh, you'll have some lifelong disability. and we were able to see that um, if you can raise these incomes, uh, then uh, farmers will choose to send their kids to school. Um, and it, it changes livelihoods very quickly. I think it's a World Bank study that said of all the different development dollars, the one that has the most immediate impact on uh, poverty reduction is investment in agriculture. Now, of course, there's a time scale here. There's the acute needs, like we're seeing in the Horn of Africa right now that are very, very important, and and WFP takes the lead on those and does a fantastic job. Then there's the the longer-term issues of creating the seeds, uh, the soil improvements, the delivery systems uh, so that farmers can have this increased productivity. And I was pretty stunned to see the gap in productivity uh, between different locations, uh, within Africa or between Africa and the United States. Uh, and so the potential really is there. For the urban poor, higher food productivity is going to be mean more food security, less volatility in prices, uh, and food is a major part of their budget. Unlike in rich countries where we sort of uh, food is a such a small percentage. for them, uh, not only are they not able to buy as much as they want, but instability, is actually one of the results when you have food price uh, spikes coming along. So the idea that uh, we could back some scientists, we could back people in country, uh, particularly in Africa, which is where the focus of our work is. Uh, you know, it looked like an intervention that had big payback. Uh, some of it's been dairy, some coffee. Uh, the bulk of it has been staple crops uh, because those are are quite important. There had been. Some underinvestment in this area. About four years ago, the world sort of looked around and said uh, that the, that uh, food aid and agriculture investment had come down, and that that really was a mistake. Uh, world Bank and others decided, okay, we need to rev that back up. You know, and, and so a lot of energy has been put into it. Unfortunately, it comes at a tough time for increasing these amounts, but some new uh, money is is has come into it, and I'm you know quite optimistic. Uh, that we can raise productivity and have uh, pretty dramatic effects because of that.
2: Here's Howard Buffett on why self-interest should drive any political leader to act to fight hunger.
3: A hungry country doesn't do very well. And um, so I think that at some point, anybody that has much of an IQ in a leadership position figures out that they're going to have a problem. And we've seen it really surface uh, in the last two or three years with uh, 30 countries having food riots. Uh, we've seen a lot of activity even more recent, uh, again recently. Um, and I, I think it's just self-preservation at some point. So I think there's a self-interest that drives it. Um, how we got involved in agriculture is a little less sophisticated than how Bill got involved in it. Uh, but I remember back in 1992, uh, uh, Dennis Avery said to me, you know, Howard, no one's gonna starve to save a tree. And I thought about that for a little bit, and I had been going around the world uh, very engaged in conservation. And all of a sudden, I stopped looking. When I was on the Serengeti, I I thought, you know, I'm going to go meet these leaders of the villages. I'm going to see what their problems are. And so Dennis's statement drove me in a very different direction. And then we spent about a decade funding programs a certain way that is more the traditional development way. And Jerry Steiner, uh, who may be here somewhere, uh, Jerry took me down – to a project that they have in uh, Trappist, Mexico, and I realized just kind of like what I'd heard you know, 15 years earlier, uh, what I saw there was that there was a better way to do this. Uh, um, I always kid Bill because he's always got a book under his arm and he, he reads more books than I could ever read, and, and he figures it out by reading it, and sometimes I'm, I have to see it. And uh, Jerry took me and I saw this, and I thought, you know, we have to do this differently. Our, our money, our investment uh, can be leveraged in a different way and we can get better results than what we're getting. And we just weren't, uh, we weren't doing it the way we needed to do it. And, and it was a great uh, opportunity for me to, to say we need to change how we do it. But agriculture to me has been, I mean, it's been most of my life. And my mom always said I didn't have enough Tonka Toys when I was a little boy. And so that's so why I have big tractors now, I guess, I don't know. <laughs>
2: Hillary Clinton on what role the U.S. government plays in the global famine fight.
6: I think that uh, what Bill and, and Howard said is really at the core of it. I mean, for for a country uh, like our own, I think there are four baskets of considerations, basically. One, the moral and humanitarian. Uh, it is the right thing to do. Uh, if you come from a country as blessed as ours with the resources we have and Uh, the food we take for granted, Uh, it is uh, an obligation to try to help those who are in need. Um, Secondly, the security and strategic considerations uh, that are certainly evident as you uh, listen to both Bill and Howard, the fact that, you know, hungry people and hungry countries and poorly managed agricultural uh, systems uh, lead to all sorts of problems that not only cause misery within, but very often uh, without as well. So you have refugee flows, you have uh, poor agricultural practices that destroy topsoil, create erosion, uh, accelerate the impact of climate change, uh, cause conflict, uh, as the Vice President said earlier Darfur which is a classic conflict between pastoralists and herders and so strategically you have a ripple effect and repercussions that keep rolling and don't stop in one localized place where people are suffering and hungry and where their land is poorly managed or not producing or where weather is not uh, cooperating. Uh, Thirdly there are historic reasons You know, I'm very proud of the role that the United States played in the 60s and 70s with the Green Revolution in India and uh, elsewhere, uh, which had a tremendous impact on creating the conditions for people to take care of themselves uh, with the right investments and the right inputs and tools. Um, And then we we moved away from those front-end investments and – really moved a lot of our agriculture and hunger and food investments to the back end, where we kind of waited for disasters and crises and failures to occur. And when this administration came in, we, we thought, you know, that doesn't add up. I mean, we ought to get back into the business of helping to improve agriculture, focus on who produces most of the food, recognizing that we're going to have to produce about, uh, last figure I saw, 70% more food in the next 20 or 30 years to keep up with population growth and to make it affordable and accessible. Um, And then the final considerations are the pragmatic, practical ones, is we know how to do this. I mean, we do have a lot of really good knowledge and skills that can be shared if we go about it in the appropriate way. With global food aid programs buying
1: much of the food that goes to fight hunger, Purchasing for Progress seeks to involve the very farmers who would otherwise go hungry because of an inability to connect with markets to sell their crops, which is why Buffett and Gates were attracted to this paradigm-shifting food aid program. As Howard Buffett explains.
3: Well, you know, patience isn't in my vocabulary, but... um, I think, uh, you know, for me, it kind of evolved uh, spending a little time in Guatemala with Villem, spending a little time in Zambia with David Stevenson, both country directors of WFP, seeing very similar activity to this. And as I said earlier, you know, Josette, uh, it took the leadership at the top of WFP to make it happen, and um, it wasn't very hard for me to figure out that this was a great idea. It didn't take me too long to see that this was something that we should support. One of the things that we struggled with for a long time was, um, as we supported projects, we could never see or figure out what's the exit strategy. I mean, what what gets us when we leave, you know, we go home, the money's gone. um, And slowly I realized that uh, I'm a slow learner, um, but I realized that, you know, The market is an incredible exit strategy, and with WFP's ability to leverage the purchasing, um, we could really have an impact on not just large numbers of farmers, but we might be able to set up a model that with certain modifications could be transferred to different parts, and it truly moves farmers into um, a competitive environment with the tools so that they can compete long-term. So when I saw all of that, uh, it wasn't very hard for me to think this is something we really should be supporting.
1: Bill Gates on the power behind the idea of purchasing for progress. Yeah,
4: I totally agree with that. The The thing we saw is that when you look at food aid, you want to be as responsive as possible. And so having all of it come from many thousands of miles away isn't... Uh, Going shouldn't be your only source for that food. And increasing aggregate demand in Africa uh, for the farmers who are doing well seemed like a very positive thing. But I think that the biggest thing is more qualitative, which is that a lot of the smallholders, in terms of uh, how they store their, their output, uh, how they maintain the quality of that output, have not, nobody's worked with them so that they can sell into. The the bigger markets now If you take the rice market in Nigeria, Nigeria is a gigantic importer of rice. Uh, they actually have a goal over the next four years to uh, not to be able to be self-sufficient in rice, and they should be if you just looked at the acreage they have. But a lot of it is that uh, the post-harvest processing, the kernels get broken, they get a lot of dirt and sand in with the rice, and compared to the almost perfect rice coming out of Asia, uh, there's not a willingness to buy it. And so having a sophisticated buyer like WFP, who because of the funds from the Buffett Foundation and ourselves could go in there and take the time to help either create cooperatives or to uh, work with them make a commitment so that they can buy the equipment or invest in new storage techniques, um, even when WFP is not there as a buyer, these people have learned how to sell into a much broader market. And that's a great thing for Africa. It's a great great thing for these farmers. And we certainly have seen even in these first few years uh, some significant success in, in uh, drawing farmers
1: into commerce
4: that were not not participating before.
1: Secretary Hillary Clinton on why purchasing for progress focuses on women in agriculture who not only comprise the largest labor source in agriculture but rarely make the decisions in many of the famine-stricken places.
6: I recall when you started this emphasis uh, with P4P and both the Gates and the Buffett Foundation's uh, requirement that half the recipients be women, there were a lot of people who said, why? Why Why would you make that? That seems like political correctness. And there was an enormous Uh, lack of knowledge, I guess is the most polite way I can say it, about the fact (laughs) that 60 to 70 percent of the people who labor in the fields are women. And they are an invisible part of the economy and certainly of agricultural production. I'm sure that Bill and Howard have had the same experience I've had in talking with, you know, ministers of this, that, and the other in many countries and talk about focusing on women smallholder farmers I really give the three people up here and their able teams a lot of credit for helping to push into greater visibility what those of us who work and care about this area know, which is if you don't focus on women, if you're trying to improve uh, agricultural production and really the whole chain in access and affordability, we're not going to be successful. So uh, it's not only the smart thing to do, it's the right thing to do, and it is harder to empower women. Often they don't own the land that they farm. They're often pushed off the land if their husband dies and they have no stake in it, even though it was their sweat labor that produced whatever was produced. They are not part of organizations. They are often denied other rights, like for credit or other kinds of support that are needed to be successful. And so anything we can do to raise their visibility and make them be seen as valued partners uh, in countries where we are working is going to be beneficial to the overall project's uh, possibility of success. Howard Buffett on the role of women. And somebody
3: asked me today, earlier, what's the game changer on this issue? And I'll tell you, the game changer is put a woman in charge of every country. Uh, <laughs>
8: there they're,
3: they're, they're, that's my mother's influence and my sisters um, but the you know the truth is there is no game changer in the end I mean this is tough work it's a complicated problem but women do look at this issue differently than men uh, a mother will look at feeding her children in a different way than a man does that's just the fact um, so when you have the personal experience of interacting, with women that have children that are dying, uh, and Bill has seen this too, that, um, you know, you realize that that that's the person you want to be the decision maker. And so empowering the mother and the the women in in an environment
4: like that is absolutely key to success.
1: Bill Gates on the female farmer in famine relief.
4: Well definitely, when you raise the income on the crops that the women's involved in, it's directly maps to improvement in food for that household and, and the money is just spent in a better way. So not only are they the majority of the actual agricultural hours, uh, but uh, when you help them, you get you get a lot more impact. Uh, and, you know, we just need to understand why there's this separation of roles and how our interventions can uh offset the tendency to, to focus on the male roles as opposed to the what the women
1: do. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remember, if you have some great travel photos in your collection, make sure you enter them in the World Footprints Travel Photo Contest. You can enter from our Facebook page, World Footprints Media, or from the link on our website at worldfootprints.com. If you want more on World Footprints Radio and everything else we have to offer from travel deals and news and more, follow us, friend us, and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick sharing legacies of positive footprints. We'll see you on the air again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
7: Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. West Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, There are not thousands of people.
5: For the best on the planet, go with World
2: Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions LLC, all rights reserved.